Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everything is changing so fast. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load. But now with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. When I realized that all the particles in our body came from the Big Bang and went through this unbelievable journey through the creation of the solar system, you know, I started to think, wow, how could we possibly know that? <laughs> right? I mean, how, what are the clues that scientists found? And that led me down the trail of wondering, well, what, you know, what was the detective work that they had to do? And, you know, and I discovered that for so many of these discoveries, it wasn't just hard work, but it was also trials and tribulations and a lot of rivalries and a lot of heartbreak as well. Those personal stories were just as interesting to me in the end as the science itself. That's Dan Levitt. He's not only amazed that every tiny bit of what we are dates back to the beginning of the universe. He's amazed at how we can know such a thing. So he doesn't just track our atoms from the Big Bang to last night's dinner in a book he calls What's Gotten Into You. He also tracks the exciting detective stories of the people who figured so much of it out. People who sometimes had to push hard against the opinions of respected colleagues, in one case even against Einstein, colleagues who at the time thought their ideas were preposterous. You know, I'm very familiar with Carl Sagan's saying, we all come from star stuff. But you've really tracked down the path we took from the elements that were in the stars to the ones that are in us. The most asked question, I think, of authors is, why did you write the book? How did you come to write the book? You came to it from a kind of an unusual way. Your teenage daughter was going to start a vegetarian diet, and that got you into writing this book in, a, in an oblique way. How did that work? Well, it was simple. It just started with a question because when she decided she wanted to become a vegetarian, I wondered what she had to eat in order to remain healthy. And uh, pretty soon I realized, well, actually, I have no idea what our bodies are ultimately made of. And then I began to think about it more and realized I also had no idea where that stuff came from. And after Googling and doing a little bit of research, I pretty quickly came to discover something which I found astonishing, which is that every single particle in our bodies came from the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. The idea that 10% of my mass was formed just three minutes after the Big Bang is an astonishing notion to me. How do we know that? Well, we know that... When the Big Bang erupted, the most basic elements that came out were electrons and the smallest particles uh, uh, that we know of, which are quarks and gluons, which are particles that glue them together. Uh, 
The quarks and gluons created protons and neutrons, which are the constituents of all atoms. Uh, but hydrogen is the simplest atom of all. And all of the hydrogen that was created came right out of the Big Bang. That's 10% of your mass. Hmm. And so um, it's, it's pretty straightforward. But not everything came from the Big Bang itself. The evolution of the universe, as I understand it, occurred step by step. And it took a while before stars and galaxies were forming. And don't we get a lot of what we are from stars exploding? Uh, we do, because with the Big Bang, uh, there were really only four elements. There were clouds of four elements drifting in space. It wasn't until the stars formed that the other elements were created. Uh, all the elements up to iron were created in massive, huge stars that got progressively hotter and hotter and created the heavier and heavier elements with more protons in their nuclei. But after iron, the only thing that could make the heavier elements, many of which are in our body, was the most powerful explosions in the universe. And those were supernova. Those were the explosions of stars themselves. It's really hard to get my mind around that, including the idea that if you add up the value of all the particles in our body, you've actually made a calculation that it's somewhere like $1,900 and change. That's a democratic idea. We're all worth a few few bucks. <laughs> that, that's right. We, we, we came up with the idea from a spreadsheet. We just, you know, there are where our bodies are made of 24 essential elements. And then all told, they're probably 61 or 62 because basically anything that gets into the dirt gets into us. So we did a spreadsheet of all of the elements, and then we went and looked up the market price of each of the elements, and that's, <laughs> that's where the figure came from. <laughs> Pretty simple. <laughs> One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was not just knowing what breakthroughs in thinking and experimentation and discovery occurred, but the stories of the people whose work led to those breakthroughs. And I get the impression that your interest in the book is as much in the people who made those breakthroughs as in the breakthroughs themselves. Absolutely. Uh, you know, when I realized that all the particles in our body came from the Big Bang and went through this unbelievable journey through the creation of the solar system, they were around during the origin of life and when the Earth was enclosed in a, in a huge icy snowball and when plants took over the continents... You know, I started to think, wow, how could we possibly know that? <laughs> right? I mean, how, what are the clues that scientists have found, and how could they find it? And that led me down the trail of wondering, well, what, you know, what was the detective work that they had to do? And, you know, and I discovered that for so many of these discoveries, it wasn't just hard work uh, and great insight, but it was also trials and, uh, and tribulations and a lot of rivalries and, and a, lot of, um, a lot of heartbreak as well. It's, it, it's, uh, those personal stories were uh, just as interesting to me in the end as, as the science itself. And so many of the stories show a person latching onto an idea, believing that he or she has got something, and then having to go against the grain of accepted thinking to get people to even listen. You list a number of biases, I guess unconscious biases, 
that held back a lot of the breakthroughs that we rely on for you to know how you got here from the Big Bang. What are a couple of those biases? How do they work out in some of the people like Lemaitre? Well, Lemaitre was a Belgian astronomer who essentially proved Einstein wrong because he proposed that uh, the universe was expanding. He based it on astronomical evidence. And when he suggested it to Einstein, Einstein said, you got to be kidding me. There's no way, right? And for Einstein, it was too weird to be true. And then Lemaitre went further and found in Einstein's equations and through reasoning, you know, the suggestion that the, the universe actually began with a big bang, that the entire, everything in the universe was actually contained in a tiny point in time and space. Again, for Einstein and, and for almost all of us contemporaries, it was just too weird to be true, right? My impression is that it was not only too weird to be true, but the very term big bang was not used by Lemaitre himself, but by somebody who was trying to express how ridiculous the idea was. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It was it was Fred Hoyle, a very well-known uh, British astronomer, who said, you know, well, you know, there, there are those who hold this Big Bang theory, and the name stuck from, <laughs> from a radio talk he gave. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it wasn't so successful as the, as the taking down, as he hoped. No. <laughs> so Lemaitre had a lot of opposition to this idea. What was the history of the idea? How did it, how did it get into the mainstream? Well, uh, you know, Lemaitre, once he, just, once he realized that the universe was expanding, simply reasoned, if the universe was, is expanding now, it was smaller before that, smaller before that, and smaller before that. And ultimately, he suggested it was contained in a teeny point of time and space. He found in Einstein's theory uh, actually a suggestion that that would happen. Einstein rejected it because he said to Lemaitre, your, uh, your mathematics or your physics is great, but your physical intuition is atrocious, right? It just, it didn't seem possible. But ultimately, it was Edwin Hubble who came up with more uh, convincing evidence that in fact, the the galaxies further away from us were moving away faster, and therefore the universe was expanding. And so Einstein ended up talking not just to Hubble and meeting with Hubble, but he met with other cosmologists, and he met and talked a lot to uh, Lemaitre, and ultimately he came around. The evidence brought him around. Einstein wanted to, he maintained that the universe was not expanding, it was fixed in place and certainly not accelerating. Right. That sounds like an example of one of your the biases that you identified that held back a lot of the people who came up with these. What would you call that bias? Well, that's the bias I call too weird to be true because, uh, I mean, when you think about the Big Bang, if the universe is expanding, what is it expanding into? Mm, yeah, <laughs> None of us can answer that question, right? And yet the Big Bang turns out to be one of the most experimentally verified theories in, in, in physics. Uh, so, you know, uh, what I found was that, you know, it's, scientists need to, like all of us, need to keep open minds and realize that, you know, we know a certain amount, but nature can play tricks on us and there can be things that we may not have conceived of uh, that uh, are, still might be possible. 
It's interesting to me that there's probably a lot that's discovered against the grain. And yet there's a reason, at least for a while, there's evidence that the grain goes in that direction. For instance, it's probably accepted by most scientists that perpetual motion is not possible. And yet I'm sure there's somebody, either in his imagination or in their, at their workbench, trying to develop a, a perpetual motion machine. There seems to be some kind of balance that you need to find because resources are scarce to put into experimentation or th- even theory. It's understandable to dump. Some people would say, put that theory aside. Don't argue it so that even without enough evidence to prove it, you're taking money away from other scientists who need funding. How, do you, how does that resolve itself in the, in the best possible way, do you think? Well, you know, it, it is a funny tension because uh, some of the great discoveries that we have, of course, come from people who go completely against the grain. Uh, and, um, you know, what I discovered is, um, f- for the most part, those discoveries faced fierce skepticism and often, often scorn. Mm. Uh, but in the end, scientists are open to evidence. They're open to new evidence. They're willing to re-examine evidence. And the evidence eventually brought entire communities of scientists around to theories that were once initially dismissed, again, because we had good evidence. But there, there is a, um, there's a tension because, you know, uh, as I'm sure you know, there are, there are also um, people who go a little bit too far, uh, like even you know even Fred Hoyle who 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 he want he, Fred Hoyle was a scientist who who discovered uh, how it was the elements were made in stars. Like Einstein, he had this brilliant breakthrough, and you know people were skeptical, and he was right. It was a, a masterful triumph. Uh, but then he made the mistake of leaning on his intu- intuition a little bit too hard and thinking, well, if I can derive this from first principles, I can derive everything from first principles. And, and so he then went on later to be skeptical of, of things that were really outside of his area of expertise, like, mm. like the Archaeopteryx fossil, which is the great transitional uh, fossil of a bird dinosaur that's in the London Museum. You know, Fred Hoyle went on record claiming that it was probably a Chinese fake. Mm. You know, and, but he did it because he felt that his intuition was stro- so strong that he, that, that he couldn't, uh, you know, he, he in the end ended up uh, kind of putting the evidence to the side. There, it's a tricky balance. You mentioned hydrogen before, and Cecilia Payne was one of those scientists who had to go against the grain because the idea that she was putting forward that most of the universe is hydrogen was anathema. Why was it anathema, and, and what, what did she have to do to, to prove it? Well, you know, she studied uh, with Eddington uh, at, at Cambridge, who was one of the greatest stellar astronomers, and like everybody else, uh, he believed that the Earth and stars had the same composition. It's because, you know, the reigning theory at the time was that the Earth was created when one star passed too close to our sun and sucked out some of the material. 
So naturally, our planet and the sun would be made of the same material. And not only that, but people had found meteorites, which they know came from space, and they had a lot of iron in them. Uh, so there were uh, there were lots of reasons for thinking that uh, the sun and the earth were not only had the same comp- uh, composition, but that the sun actually had a huge iron core in the center, just just mm. like the earth does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but when Payne uh, had the opportunity to, to analyze these wonderful uh, uh, plates, which which were light spectra that were taken at the Harvard Observatory. Uh, she she her story is wonderful by the way because she she fell in love with astronomy discovered in England when she was about to graduate from Cambridge that there was no opportunity for a female astronomer in Cambridge and for her becoming a schoolmistress was kind of like it was like you know worse than death and that was but the only job open to that was the only in, job intellectual open. women at the time that's right that's right and she this was, was ni- 1923 as i remember Yes, something around there. That's right. So she wrangled a, f- a fellowship at Harvard, uh, and there, because she actually was a fellowship, she and she could do, uh, she could kind of do to a certain extent, you know, whatever she chose to do. She wanted to analyze these wonderful photographic plates that they had taken of the of the light spectra of stars, and. Uh, the light spectra, which are these bands uh, that analyze the different elements in stars, revealed that the stars had many different elements in them. But there were many anomalies that made it very difficult to figure out what percent of the elements the stars actually had. So they knew the stars had hydrogen and iron and, and, and helium and other things, but how much of each? Pain, because quantum physics was so new, uh, was really the only one at Harvard who had the wherewithal to really painstakingly analyze those plates. She, you know, she had sat in on lectures by Bourne and, you know, and Rutherford and, and others who were really at the forefront of developing those theories. And using quantum physics, she was able to determine that the stars are actually 98% just hydrogen and helium. All the other elements that stars contain are just tiny, tiny fractions. Well, I mean, when she went back to her professors at Cambridge and said, this is what I think, they said, one of them said to her, Miss Payne, you are very brave. (laughs) (laughs) To say something so crazy. It it does. And in fact, uh, the the leading expert at Princeton University um, told her that her dissertation, which this was research for, was amazing, but that this particular conclusion was simply could not be possible. And she backed down on it in her thesis, she, right? She did back down. You know, she wrote in her wonderful autobiography that, uh, you know, his word could make or break careers. And so she did back down and, and she regretted it uh, for the rest of, his, of her life. I can imagine because getting credit for big ideas can be important. It can lead people to do more work, to get better funding and, and so on. It's not just egotism at all. But as I remember from your book, the person running the university where she was making all of this headway said he, she, she would never become a professor while he was alive. And that yeah. turned out to be true. Yeah, it did turn out to be true. I mean, I should point out that she did get credit in the end because uh, 
the Princeton astronomer um, did f- roughly about four years later from other evidence, he did come to the same conclusion, hmm. published that, said, you know, I guess what? Stars are made of mostly hydrogen helium. And by the way, Cecilia Payne was right about that. And it's nice that her results jibe with mine. So, so, but it was recognized at the time by fellow astronomers. In fact, she was called the best man at Harvard by, by, <laughs> yeah. by a, a fellow astronomer. But what she faced at the time was that the president of Harvard University would not let any women be on the faculty. So even though she taught, she was not granted the position of professor. And he literally said, he said, you know, she, you know, she, will, she will be, you know, given a, a, a faculty, a full faculty position uh, over my dead body. And it wasn't until after he, he not a minute he, too soon. That, that's right. It wasn't until after he died, much later, that, that she received that appointment. But there is, I should add, there is that you know a happy ending as well because she ultimately became um, chair of the Department of Astronomy ah, at Harvard. God, that has that is a happier ending. When we come back from our break, Dan Levitt tells the story of another woman who went against the grain, solving the mystery of how our bodies get their energy. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you, either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm... (laughs) I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dan Levitt. I wanted to follow up on scientists who went against the grain. A great example in his book, What's Gotten Into You, is the story of mitochondria, the tiny energy factories in your cells 
that sneaked their way into you. The woman who championed this idea was Lynn Margulis. I love that story. She was interested in mitochondria, which are the energy factories in our cells, and chloroplasts, which create photosynthesis in plants. And she, she, by the way, was married to Carl Sagan. She was at the University of Wisconsin, and she um, uh, learned from some of her professors that they suspected that both mitochondria and chloroplasts actually looked an awful lot like bacteria. Mm. So much so that they thought maybe they actually originally were free-living bacteria that have found their way into cells and somehow propagated and prospered there. The idea that we wouldn't have the energy to carry on our daily lives, to take a breath without mitochondria, is a big idea to me when you, when you realize that it's not, it has its own DNA, right? Am I right about that? You're absolutely right. I've, mitochondria ha- themselves have some DNA of their own inside. And that was one of, that is the principal means by which we now know that Lynn Margulis was right. Because when she proposed this idea, which was too weird to be, was preposterous, right? That, that at some point in the past, a couple billion years ago, a single-celled organism ingested a bacteria that was very good at producing energy. But instead of digesting it, somehow they came to a, a, a meeting of, you know, a, a, a symbiosis, a meeting of the mind, so to speak. And the, the organism that ingested provided the, the uh, soon-to-be mitochondria with sugars, and the mitochondria produced energy for both of them. Uh, and now, the, the interesting thing about the DNA is that scientists fought this idea tooth and nail because it just seemed crazy and went against what they understood about genetics. But Mm. because mitochondria have DNA, Margulis was able to, she lived at a time when it was possible to test her idea. That was in the 70s when DNA sequencing just came into uh, the fore. And when people finally said, okay, well, let's look at the DNA of mitochondria and let's look at the DNA of bacteria and see if they're similar, they discovered that they were and so she was vindicated. She was triumphed. Uh, she, she triumphed. But uh, it's interesting that had she not lived at that time, uh, you know, or had we not come up with DNA sequencing, we never would have known that that actually happened. Tell me about Charles Towns. Uh, he was fascinating because he... Um, he insisted. He was another one who insisted on going his own way. Uh, he um, w- actually invented the Maser, which was a predecessor of the laser, for which he won the Nobel Prize. Uh, but along the way, he came up with a theory of how one could detect the uh, organic molecules, long molecules in in space. And it, when he came up with the idea in, in in the late fifties, everyone thought he was nuts. Uh, for good reason, and the reason was that organic molecules are long and delicate, and outer space is full of of cosmic rays and and all kinds of things that can tear uh, tear them to bits. Right, so everyone was sure that there was nothing there. But Towns 
thought, well, let's look anyway. Uh, mm-hmm. And the reason why was because when he had been uh, uh, an engineer, physicists had told him, no, this is possible. And then things turned out to be true that were, you know, for whatever reason, they hadn't envisioned. And and when he did his work on the on the Maser, some Nobel Prize uh, laureates who were in his department told him, your research will never work. And then he won the Nobel Prize for, <laughs> for it instead. So, so when he finally had uh, actually the Nobel Prize money and he moved to Berkeley, he decided that he, along with uh, 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 some colleagues, would actually look for molecules in space. And so they they, they now, how built, did they look for? They were using a special device. They were using a, a, a microwave telescope, and they had to tune it. They decided, okay, we're going to look for a particular molecule. They looked for, I I think it was, um, I forget the very first one they looked for, but but they uh, they had to tune the the the, the uh, receiver just for those particular vibrations. So it was like and, listening to a radio show from outer space. That's exactly. It's a radio telescope. That's exactly it. And the wild thing is. First, they had no idea to where to look, but within like two or three days, they found molecules immediately. Uh, and, and the reason this, I love this part of the story, the, 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 the people who had poo-pooed the idea were right if you're only talking about a single molecule that couldn't withstand the forces, the radiation in outer space. But instead, they hadn't considered the fact that there might be vast clouds of them. Right? And, and is it true that the outer layers of these clouds did suffer from the radiation, but when you got deeper into the, the middle of the dense cloud, they were unaffected, they were shielded by others farther out? Is that the way it worked? Yeah, that's exactly the way it works. And, uh, you know, since, since that it, he first um, made those discoveries, you know, we've now found over... Over, well over 200 kinds of organic molecules floating floating in large clouds in space, which, you know, has led some people to think that those molecules might have found their way to Earth and might have been responsible for, you know, might have helped with the first uh, evolution of life on Earth. But that also makes some scientists think that, wow, if organic molecules are out there everywhere, that increases the likelihood that life may exist in other places because the constituents of life could also be there. It makes me wonder, and I don't know if either one of us or anybody is capable of answering this question, but I wonder if the constituents that are found when you break down a living organism don't add up to life if you pour them into a jar. But somehow that $1,900 and change worth of elements seem to have an emergent property when they're together in the right combination. Do you think that life tends to emerge under the right combination of these elements? I do, but it's not simply a combination of the elements. Because as you said, if you just put them in the test tube and shake it up and wait right. several you, billion you, years, you don't nothing's going to crawl you, out. You don't even get a mouse. <laughs> that, Exactly. <laughs> That's right. But um, it had to do with the geology and the right combination of elements and the energy source all being together in the same, in the right circumstances, in the same way. And over, we don't know how long a period of time before mm. the first cells emerged. That's still one of the big mysteries of science, is exactly how the first 
uh, cells emerge. There's, there are lots of theories and, and lots of really good theories, but there's, there's no consensus yet. Well, that's your job for the next 10 years. <laughs> I'll be waiting for your book. <laughs> Great. In 10 years, <laughs> you can read How Life Emerged. It's funny, there were other little tidbits I got from your book that I, I had never known before. You said if you, if you had an old TV set, when you change the channel, you can tune into the Big Bang. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, it, when the Big Bang first occurred, there was a tremendous amount of radiation that released. Uh, and that radiation, uh, over time, uh, grew longer and longer and still is everywhere. It's, it's like a fossilized radiation from the moment of the Big Bang. And that's what you can, you know, in the old days when we had the television sets where you turn the dial, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you get the static, right? Right. So some of that static is actually the radiation coming from, from the electromagnetism coming from the Big Bang. I'm so sorry I threw out my old TV. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what a valuable link to the past that could be right now. Wow. Well, this has been really fun for me to trace your path as you went from the Big Bang to you and to me as well. We always end our show with seven quick questions. They're roughly about communication and relating. You game? I'm game. What do you wish you really understood? Oh, wow. Um, I think in some ways I wish I really understood how to do a better job of changing people's minds. That's the second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Oh, well, I wish I was better at it. <laughs> That's why I answered the first one the way I did. <laughs> very respectfully. <laughs> yeah. Very carefully. And I think you, um, uh, maybe you help them see how it was that you came to your conclusions. Mm, that seems to be a good strategy. It's suggested by a number of people. Okay, third question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Oi. <laughs> that's a statement <laughs> that's right <laughs> well you know when i was writing this book uh one of the questions that drew me up short was when a fr i was talking with, about it with a friend of mine and she said well uh what happens to our atoms when we die do our atoms ex live for it exist forever and i just loved that question because you know it was something that i had never really considered i thought about no, where they I came from right question but yeah to eternity right and, yeah, and it 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 just opened up so such a new raft of, of fascinating questions to explore. So what do you suppose the current thinking is on that, which will be disproved by somebody who's working against the grain someday? The, the conservation of energy takes care of that. Well, I think there are two answers. One of them is uh, apparently the the protons in the nuclei. It there there's a suggestion that after umpteen billions of billions of billions of billions of years, they might actually decay and, and split up into smaller particles. Mm. Uh, uh, but, you know, that's like way, way, way in the future. So unless the universe, if the universe expands forever, eventually 
you know, even the, the, the smallest bits of atoms may turn into essentially electromagnetic waves or, or waves of energy. But for our practical purposes, our atoms are going to live forever. <laughs> for practical purposes. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Um, I would say you just keep changing the subject until they, <laughs> until you, until they say something that you're uh, interested in talking about. <laughs> okay, let's say you're sitting at a table, dinner table, next to someone you never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? What I try to do, and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, is, is I try to ask a, a, a more substantial question, like, um, what have you, you know, been doing recently that you found really satisfying? Hmm. Yeah, it seems to me that kind of thing works well. Next one, next to last, what gives you confidence? <laughs> to the extent that I have it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I have done an awful lot of documentary films, and in for so many of them, I've been thrown or tackled subjects that I've just thought, oh my God, there's no way I can pull this off. And then somehow I've managed to not just pull it off, but do something that I'm very happy with and proud of. And so when I, when I, when I start to scratch my head and say, oh, this is impossible, basically I just look back and I say, well, okay, I've done it before, so hopefully I can pull it out again. Good. Last question. What book changed your life? Mm. You know, Sociobiology by E.O. Wilson mm. I made a big impact on me. And it wasn't because I accepted everything that he had to say, because, you know, as I'm sure you know a lot that he said was controversial. But the idea that biology and science could, could give such deep insights into such a wide, into behavior and, and such a wide array of animal behaviors, including our own, uh, that just, that really helped cement my interest in science as a way of, of understanding the natural world. Well, thank you for passing on your understanding of the natural world to the rest of us. It, your book really is tremendously readable, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you. And grateful for this conversation. Thank you. This was this was so much fun, and I, you know I love your show. I, I think what you're doing is is absolutely wonderful. So th I'm that. so honored to be here. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Dan Levitt's book is called What's Gotten Into You? The Story of Your Body's Atoms from the Big Bang to Last Night's Dinner. It's his first book. His career has been writing, producing, and directing award-winning documentaries for National Geographic, Discovery, Science, History, PBS, and the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. You can view a sample of his films on his website, danlevitt.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, 
with help from our associate producer, Gene Shumay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth O'Haney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with former Democratic Congressman Steve Israel. He often found himself baffled when scientists came to testify in hearing. I remember attending hearings on climate, for example, where a climate scientist would testify. And I would be sitting up on the dais, that beautiful mahogany dais, and listening to this five minutes of testimony. And at the end, I would lean to the member of Congress on my left or the member of Congress on my right, and we would all have uh, a similar uh, reaction. And that was always, what did he just say? Or what did she just say? The scientists communicate in a certain way. They're data-driven, right? They're empirical. Uh, and politicians are not always data-driven and not only empirical, they're narrative. Uh, and so it's so vital, I, I, in my view, uh, that we, we reduce this communications gap between the science community and the political community. Steve Israel, whose experience in Congress made him an early supporter of the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. In the California Road Trip Republic, we believe you take adventure for a ride. Whether coastal cruising, mountain motoring, or redwood roaming, discover beauty around every turn. Your California road trip can kick off from anywhere. Starting route. But it should always start at visitcalifornia.com. Then buckle up, crank those tunes, and ride with us in the California Road Trip Republic. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.